Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And I am so excited that you joined us today because this week we have such a spectacular guest, Katie Contrell, who is one of my favorite people. She's kind of one of everybody's favorite people, isn't she? Yes. And she's been on before, but not for many years. And she will be telling us all about her new position with the Better Food Foundation. And they're basically seeking to make veganism the default option. So I'm down with that. Katie will also catch us up on what's happening at the Factory Farming Awareness Coalition and in her personal life, which in a year of ups and downs for everyone has had some really big ones for her. She is just such a delightful person. I loved this conversation. Okay, on the Flock Bonus this week, I'll be continuing my conversation with Katie. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get that link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast goes up. And you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group, which I hope you have joined. And if you are not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And if you're a Flock member, please also join us for our first Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on, you guessed it, the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern or 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we focus on how to be better activists and how to take care of ourselves. And we speak to some inspiring guests, including recent podcast guests. We just had Catherine Kelleher join us for a very lively and in-depth conversation about what it's like to run a rescue and how we can all sort of take those life lessons and plug them into our daily lives, even if we're not running a rescue, but we're activists of other kinds. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And new perk, you can set up one-on-ones with me, Jasmine, also to go over activism that is going on for you or maybe some things you're struggling with activist wise or veganism wise and we could we could chat it through so if you want to do that which of course i hope you do then reach out to jen at jen at our henhouse.org and we'll get it set up so i know this is not our first uh our, our first podcast episode of june but it's the first one we're recording in June because of our recording schedule. So I do want to say happy pride. It's pride month, which is my favorite. Well, it's always pride month for me. Every month is pride month, but it's exciting to see that like added layer of pride celebrations. So happy pride, Marianne. Happy pride, Jasmine. I'm glad you're proud. I'm proud of many things. You know, for me, veganism and pride go very hand in hand. I, I when I first became vegan, that was the main thing I would write about in whatever I was writing for at the time. One of my first articles was about the connections between the mindset of the oppressor when it comes to animal rights and LGBTQ rights and things like that. It's very personal for me. and, And I do try and talk about it whenever I can in that context. In fact, I just came out with a new newsletter for my sub stack, which you can find, uh, I think it's, let's see, is it Jasmine Singer? Yes, jasminesinger.substack.com. There's no E on Jasmine, so it's J-A-S-M-I-N, singer.substack.com, where I talked about pride. And like one thing I said here is the common liberation theme is once we achieve it would look something like this. Nobody's body is here for our use. 
what someone else does with their body is their business, not ours. Their bodies and lives are not ours to consume or commodify, and we should each be able to live our own truths and be safe in doing so. So that's sort of like the thousand foot high view to me of the commonality here. And of course, you can relate it to multiple types of uh, oppressions and liberation movements. But right now I'm speaking specifically about pride. And it's, it's a good opportunity to talk about it, even though I've been talking about it for so long. I realize that a lot of people who read my newsletter are maybe not even vegan yet. And so once I, you know, everyone's down with pride. Well, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people are down with pride. And so I have heard from a few people who read my newsletter, like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. And it's an interesting reminder to me because I think it's obvious. In fact, when we were going to plan this conversation we're having now, we kept kind of going back to the fact like, well, isn't this obvious? But not always. It's not always obvious for everyone. And so, yeah. I think it's not obvious for hardly for hardly anyone. So, yeah, I think it's a great theme. I love the way you put it about, about the bodies of others and how they're not ours. They are theirs. I think the connections are enormous. And I think everyone who is vegan also, I mean, maybe they shouldn't like uh, take over the month because that would that would be tacky, but should be very proud, should be very proud of what they are doing to uh, change the world for animals and LGBTQ vegan Pride Month. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, no, I, I love the way you put that. And, you know, it's a particularly poignant time right now, I think, because the pandemic, I mean, it's it's a thrilling time because we get to leave the house and the pandemic is not over, but doing so much better in this country. And then we're constantly reminded by reading the papers that it's, you know, people are still suffering all around the world. So there's a lot of mixed feelings going on. And and one of the mixed feelings that I've really been dwelling on is how, and this is something I talked to Katie about, how unbelievable it is that this whole thing has passed without people being aware that that pandemics are going to keep happening over and over again. And this is a really dangerous thing. And, and that factory farming is a hugely dangerous activity. For, not for animals, obviously for animals. It's the ultimate danger, but for humans. And and I just don't, like right now in the news, they seem to be focusing on the idea that the pandemic virus escaped from a lab in Wuhan, you know, which has always been a theory floating around, but that seems to be focused on even more now. And and even the connection to the, to the wet market seems to be fading. And I just kind of wonder... It, like, is that true? Do people just not don't want to face it? But I don't even think the connection to the wet markets had that much impact on people because they think, well, I don't eat bats, so I'm okay. I'm not doing anything wrong. And we just keep ignoring that we are brewing this horror. Like, if you don't care about animals at all, we have set up incubation laboratories all over the country to, to brew pandemics. And uh, what made me start thinking about this was in China, there's the first human case of H10N3 bird flu. Now, I imagine you, like I, cannot keep track of all these H1 bird flus because there's so many of them and they keep coming out. But, you know, sooner or later, and it's probably sooner, we're going to have the next one. And not only is this terrifying, but it's also, as is everything, a huge opportunity for um, activism if you can just get people to to get a little scared about that. This was a terrible, terrible thing. 
And as Katie put in the interview, I don't want to steal Katie's whole whole shtick in the interview. I do. I want to steal (laughs) Katie's whole shtick. That's my goal in life. But, you know, this could be just like a minor introduction to the big one. Oh, so scary. Everything's so scary. When you were mentioning whether we should talk about it on the podcast, I was like, well, okay, but can we make it like less shitty somehow when we discuss it? I think I suggested instead of the pandemic, we could talk about climate change. Oh, that's good. Okay. Well, I will, you know, speaking of climate change, it's interesting because I have seen that, you know, more and more there are mentions of it entering the zeitgeist, or at least from where I stand. Obviously, it's been in our zeitgeist as activists for like decades uh, and a lot more intensely in the last 15 years and a lot, lot more intensely in the last 10. But I am seeing it like on TV in ways that I, I, I have mentioned to you. I, I, I've mentioned to you like I see vegan mentions left and right now, like on the Connors I've mentioned or on Star Trek, things like that. But I've actually seen more and more mentions just in the past week. I, I was watching two shows that had like really powerful mentions about climate change and climate catastrophe. One is was in this show called Special, which is phenomenal. And it's on Netflix and I just, everyone should watch it. It's really good. And it's it's a little light comedy, but it covers some very big issues, uh, including disability rights and things like that, because the the star of it has uh, cerebral palsy. And so it's a lot about, uh, it's a lot about like what he is going through in terms of the reflection of a world who doesn't really understand his disability, especially because it is somewhat an invisible one to many people. Really powerful, but also hilarious show. And there was a mention in it, like the in the second season that I just finished, where his friend just in in you know passing is like, did you know New York City is going to be underwater in twenty years? And it's just like a moment well, and it passes. I've been and saying like, that for 20 years. <laughs> I know. And then I also finished finally watching The Affair, which I, I'm not actually going to recommend. Um, it was like just my like ridiculous, like escape from reality kind of soap opera type show. But I finished watching it and the last season takes place. This is a little bit of a spoiler. If you want, if you're watching The Affair, you might want to pause it. Pa- I, I fast forward for like 20 seconds, but the last season takes place like 30 years in the future. And like, it's everything we say is going to happen, you know, like it's, um, you know, the Hamptons are basically uh, uninhabitable. And there's a lot of talk about vertical farming as a way to capture oxygen and, and mushrooms will save the world. And like, (laughs) it's interesting for me to suddenly be seeing these issues. Um, Maybe it's rising anxieties that I'm, that I'm seeing, but like, in so many ways, veganism is ahead of the climate change mentions in terms of like Hollywood's representation, which is weird because there's such little representation of vegans in Hollywood, but it's happening here and there. It has been happening for a while. And I think there's a huge opportunity when climate comes up, because as much as there does seem to be more acceptance in the zeitgeist that, you know, climate change is actually a problem, isn't actually an issue. Uh, and God knows, who knows whether we're in time to like do anything about it, but it does seem like it's everywhere now. There is not the same level of recognition for the contributions to animal agriculture. So I think it just comes back to this is just another opportunity for us to like get in that message, not because we only care about animals and we don't care about climate change because that would be ridiculous. And sometimes people do kind of sound like that's what they mean. Of course we care about climate, but we need people to know that factory farming is a sin against nature in a million different ways. And this is one of them. And, you know, how they are still blind to that issue 
is beyond me, but we know they are. And then we know it's our uh, job to try to wake them up. So yeah, all of these things are opportunities for activism. I also, I haven't watched it yet, but I read about this show on Netflix because you were talking about Netflix called Sweet Tooth. Have you heard of that? Uh, no. I saw it advertised and I, I was, because there's this boy, this little boy and he has antlers. And I was like, I wonder what that's about. So I, I, I found this article that, that um, said that the most provocative idea in this show is that erasing the boundary between humans and animals might force us to reckon with the way we treat animals as well as the way we treat people. Oh, that, so that sounds pretty wow. interesting. I want to watch that. Yeah, I do too. That's funny. I um, was chatting with a group of people on Zoom recently. I'm trying to help this small group of people to understand veganism a little better and help them make their shift to veganism. It's, it's, it's connected to some folks. I know I don't generally do this, but as I was talking about it with them, they, you know, I said, you know, now that you have this in your mind, you're going to start to like experience the world differently. Cause now you won't be able to like unknow it. And I said, you'll even experience um, popular culture differently. Like for example, the musical wicked, which I've seen, you know, back when there was back when there was Broadway, which I'd seen like, you know, over 10 times, I think, um, is to me an animal rights manifesto. And obviously I know you feel the same way, Marianne. I honestly don't know how anybody doesn't feel that way. It's so completely obvious. That's literally what I said to them. I was like, it's about a misunderstood animal rights activist who frees these oppressed animals. And they were like, oh my God. But it's funny because you start to see the world this way. And um, like, anyway. you start to see the world like in reality, as opposed to like all of your crazy uh, subterfuge right. to hide the fact of, of what we're doing. When we were chatting before we hit record about like what to talk about, I noticed something that I'm not sure I'm right here, but I do want to mention it, you know, for we've, we've been doing this for 11 years now, every, every week. And I think when, you know, when we started, it was always like, always bring up animals in any conversation, bring up the animals and what they're going through. And I still feel like that. But I did notice this like kind of tiny little nuance and I might be, I might have misunderstood it or maybe I'm wrong. But we were talking about how we should always turn the conversation back to animal agriculture, like when climate comes up, especially. And I think the interesting nuance here is that turning the conversation back to animal agriculture is sort of different to me than turning the conversation back to animals. Because even though animals are what make up the like horrible, violent system of animal agriculture, the way a lot of people take in animal agriculture is as like an environmental thing. And it seems to me that like, especially with these mentions I'm seeing in these shows I'm watching, it seems to me that might be somehow easier to get through to people. I don't know. I think that's exactly what we've, I think the reason we do it, that's exactly the reason because we've seen over and over that it's easier to get through to people. For some reason, which I ask almost every guest, I'm sure, you know, I asked Katie this as well. Why? Why do people who apparently care about animals and go ooh and ah and would never do harm an animal, why do they continue to do this? And it's not a question I can answer. We can talk about words like cognitive dissonance and we can talk about it, but it, it never really gets through to me. I don't understand it. So, but, you know, we have come to accept that it is easier to talk about things in which people have self-interest. So, yeah, I don't it's know. Sad, it, that's kind of sad, but, but I do feel we got to like do what we, can, we gotta do. We can't just do what we want right. to do. Right. And I do it too. I mean, I talk about uh, if, if I'm in if I'm in a non-vegan crowd, I will frequently bring it up through another 
vantage point, whether it's like, you know, human rights, there's so many, or environmental rights, but it really, I feel a very deep sadness, like a despair about the fact that like, it's the animals themselves, they, they just continue to be not the driving forces for, for, I think that even in the grassroots organizations, when I first started 15, 17 years ago, when I first started in the animal rights movement, I think that animals were much more the centerpiece of like advocacy campaigns. And, you know, it's interesting that Katie is the guest today because she was certainly, that was certainly a big part of her original advocacy as the um, founder of the Factory Farming Awareness Coalition. But it, it this is an anecdote here. I'm not talking about a specific organization, but it does seem like a lot of groups seem to be recognizing that the way in isn't necessarily to talk about the actual animals. <laughs> Maybe at sanctuaries, it's different, you know, because we can actually look at them as people and as like something, not some, you know, someone, not something. But it's, it's hard. Well, I'm, I'm going to try to end on it up now because this is getting really depressing. <laughs> but as I always say, like we have to get the meat out of their ears. And I don't know whether that's true. I don't know whether it's just that there are only a very small subset of people, i.e. us, who can see this. I don't know why that would be because many people who aren't seeing it are very good people in other ways, but maybe that's true. Maybe it's a limited group and we just have to find ways to change people's minds in other ways or whether it really is true, as I've always said, or I've always hoped anyway, that if you can get them to stop eating animals for uh, for other reasons, for climate or, what, or their health or whatever, they will be able to see they'll be able to look at what's happening to animals in a way that can open their minds and hearts. And, and I certainly have seen that with individual people. I don't know whether it's true on a large scale, but you know, we don't have time for wait, to wait for people to develop this empathy. We have to use whatever right. way we can to get in. I'll add to your hope here as our final note here before we get to the interview. I, I am given a lot of hope by the fact that the future, I, I must believe, is, is vegan. And whether that means every single person is going to go vegan or like the fact that it will just become the normal thing to have lots of vegan food on a menu or the um, lab grown meat or whatever you want to call it. I know lots of people call it different things, you know, cell grown meat, um, things like that. But we have to transition things. I was just I, I was lucky enough to emcee the book launch for Miyoko Shinner's new book the vegan meat cookbook the other day. And um, I wound up leading a panel on the future of food with some really great panelists. And like some of them were really old school, like Seth Tibbet, the founder of Tofurky. And some of them were like new or newer to the space. And everyone was like, yeah, our passion is alternative proteins. And here's how we're going to mainstream it. And here's how, here, here are all of the things we can get proteins from. And here's how we're producing them en masse. And, and it was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is great. Like it left me with genuine hope, you know? And, and so uh, I'm excited about that. But then I went afterwards. Can I, can I just ask a question yeah. about the book? Sure. Is it how to make your own vegan meats or is it how to use commercially made vegan meats in recipes? It's a little of both. Okay. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. At times she recommends that you go and you buy some of the like beyond ground beef or whatever. And at times she's like, here's how to make your own. Oh, cool. Because her, yeah. I, I think her very first cookbook before she became Miyoko, I mean, she was always Miyoko, right. but you know, Miyoko was about making your own <laughs> cheese. 
You know, it's so funny. I was grocery shopping the other day and like, I, you know, pick. I, it was sort of mindless and I was just putting the things in my cart. I get to the checkout line and um, I look at the cart and I swear to God, it looked like I was doing a photo shoot for Miyoko's. Like, I think I had like six Miyoko's products in my, in my cart. And it was like, it's just such, it's so great. Um, although I, it, it is funny because like, I recognize the importance of the vegan meat cookbook and I think it's amazing. Like I'm already underlining and putting, putting post-it notes in, in recipes that I hope to try, but I am such a simple person. I'm such a simple cook like you. I'm not, I don't really, I don't get a lot of enjoyment of following like big, big recipes. That's why I'm, I'm putting these post-it notes in hopes that someone magically finds that, them and makes them for me. But I made a chickpea omelet the other day and it, all it was was chickpea flour and water. And like I threw some vegetables in it. It required a absolutely no cooking skills. And um, I got the recipe from Fat Free Vegan, Susan Voiston, who's actually, I think she's actually been on our hen house before. I've certainly interviewed her before. I think it was for our hen house. But anyway, I was like, why, why do people need such fancy things? You could just add chickpea flour and water. It was, it was a funny one of those moments of like, why don't you people get it? <laughs> like, this is fucking easy. Excuse my French, but anyway. Well, they don't. And so I'm really glad that Just Egg is out there. And all the others. Oh, me. oh my God. I also have just egg in my fridge. I'm obsessed. Uh, I, I like the toast, the toaster ones that, that are already kind of made for you. Anything that's already made for me or like almost already made for me, I'm going to go to. Yeah, I'm with you. So um, let's talk to our guest because she is such a bright light in such a dark place. Katie Cantrell is the founder and former executive director of the Factory Farming Awareness Coalition and now serves as the director of corporate outreach for the Better Food Foundation. For more than a decade, Katie has led workshops on the social and ecological hazards of industrial animal agriculture and consulted on food policy at universities, government agencies, and Fortune 500 corporations. Her materials have been used as a resource by food justice advocates around the world. Katie will be joining Marianne right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Katie. Thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you back. And I really want to hear what you're working on because it sounds pretty exciting and I'm not that familiar with it. And before we get to the specific campaign you're working on, can you tell us about the Better Food Foundation and what it is and, and what its projects are? Yes. So the Better Food Foundation is focused on food justice and transitioning to a more just and sustainable food system, specifically by encouraging more plant-forward food policies. And that's what I'm working on. Our main program right now is Default Veg. 
Yeah, I I heard that you were heading this up and it really sounds like an amazing idea, an amazing concept, but I don't really understand how it works. So I'd love to get into that. Can you explain what it is, what your goal is, but and also how you approach food providers and kind of propose this to them? Absolutely. So the core concept is really simple. It's just flipping the norm. So as we all know too well, right now in America, the default is meat and people can especially opt into plant-based. This is just flipping that so that the default is plant-based and people can opt into meat. So it's not forcing anything on anyone. It's just encouraging people to choose the more sustainable, healthy option by making it the default. And and when you, like, who are you approaching? I mean, I'd love this idea, but I, I wouldn't know where to start. Who are you approaching? Who who are your targets? And, and what do you say to them? Yes. Yeah, so my main focus is corporations. I'm working on corporate cafeterias and catering. I started about two months ago. So the program is relatively new in that context. But my colleague, Alana Braverman, has been working on this for conferences and for universities as well. So so that, those are still focus groups, the universities plus corporate? Yes. And, you know, post-COVID, once conferences restart, then we'll be targeting environmental and public health conferences as well. Oh, cool. That's a really great idea. So a lot of these, I would assume, a lot of these places are all the same company, like the big food provider, like Sodexo and, and whatever. So do you is that who you're going to? So it depends a lot on the company. We are right now mostly focused on catered meetings. And so that's usually just office admins. Sometimes that, you know, if if it's a big corporation and they have a corporate cafeteria, sometimes they order catering from the cafeteria, you know, be that Compass or Sodexo or Bon Appetit. Oftentimes they're just ordering from restaurants, whatever their favorite is, whatever is nearby, whatever is easiest. So that's one of the complexities of this is the decision-making process is often not clear, but what we're doing is finding allies within corporations who can talk to their office admins, who can talk to the sustainability director and get this implemented as an office policy. Oh, that's a really cool idea. And I imagine we have some listeners who would be in that position. This would be a great form of activism. All right. So you, you find out who to call, which I'm sure is challenging in the first place. <laughs> yeah. And then how does the conversation go? Are you and, and what kind of reactions are you getting? Yeah. So people are really interested in it. I mean, obviously right now, one of the big challenges is that there's for the most part, no actual food service because of COVID. Oh, true. Yeah. This is all in a vacuum at the moment. Yes. And because it's a new program, most of the conversations to this point have been largely theoretical, but there is a lot of interest. And we're hoping that, you know, as places are starting to gear up to go back, we can help them establish a new norm that's better than what we had before. You know, we don't just have to automatically do things the way that we used to, but we can look at what's really the best case scenario to create this more sustainable, healthy world that we want to see coming out of this pandemic. When you approach these people, do they kind of know this is this is something that should be on their agenda? Is it all new to them? I always have trouble since I live in such a completely vegan world doing reality checks about what kind of reactions we get in the real world. Uh, well, I shouldn't say we're not in the real world, but, <laughs> but you know you know what I mean. Yeah. So is it a surprise or are they like, oh yeah, we've we've been we've been talking about switching things up. The world's changing. Like, or does it vary? Yeah. You know, I think it's really, there's been a tremendous amount of progress in the last few years. So I, previous to this, founded the Factory Farming Awareness Coalition, and I would give talks to high schools and colleges, but also a lot of Fortune 500 companies, government agencies. And, you know, for years, they had never even heard of factory farming. Like, 
you know, people in charge of, of environmental sustainability would not know any more about this issue than like your average high school student. But I found that, you know, both for younger people and for experts and folks interested in sustainability in the last few years, I think there's really been a tremendous growth and awareness around this issue. So we find that for the most part, people are, are already on board with the general idea. They know that, yes, plant-based is a good way to cut carbon and water. They might not know just how effective it is. Often they're kind of shocked by the numbers when you spell it out for them. But, you know, they know it's more sustainable and they know that there's growing interest in it. And so there's likely, you know, it's it's likely to appeal to a certain segment of their employees or of their customers. I think the main issue is still just concern about backlash. No one wants to make anyone angry. And so mm. that's why, you know, having it as the default, but giving people the freedom to opt in is really appealing because we're not just taking something off the menu. There's been a lot of backlash to initiatives like, you know, taking meat off the menu for one day a week when you're forcing it onto people. They don't like, you know, no one likes having options taken away from them or being told what to do. And so I think there's still some concern and stigma around that, just that People need their freedom of choice. I can't tell them what they should or shouldn't eat. And so that's why I'm excited about this program because it utilizes behavioral economics and nudge theory, um, choice architecture to kind of nudge people in the right direction without totally forcing it on them. Yeah. Can you go? I know that that's a, a really important focus of your work is using social science research in positive ways. And can you go a little bit deeper into the ideas that, that you just uh, talked about? Absolutely. So a lot of it is based on the book Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, and they look at the power of defaults, partly because of laziness and partly because of the desire to fit in. Most people will just stick with whatever the default option is. So, you know, whether that's a ringtone or a savings plan, whatever it might be, we're, we're sort of funneled into these default actions. And it happens throughout our lives in all of these different areas. And they looked at, you know, a lot of the times those defaults are done just with whatever's easiest or whatever is most profitable for the corporation. They're not often set according to what's best for employees, what's best for the earth, what's best for humanity. And so they look at the power of defaults where if you switch the norm, so one classic example is organ donations, where like in the United States right now and in some countries, by default, you are not an organ donor and you have to check a box in order to opt into it. But if you just flip that so that by default, you are an organ donor and you have to check a box to opt out of that, we see the rate of organ donations skyrocket. So the really extreme example is in Austria, or excuse me, in Germany, it's an opt-in. So by default, you are not an organ donor. You can choose to opt into it. They have about 12% of people choose to be organ donors. And in Austria, which is very culturally similar, by default, you are an organ donor and you have to opt out. And about 99% of people are organ donors. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. I mean, I knew when you started to set up that example, I knew it was going to slant in that direction, but that's really crazy. That's yeah. a big difference. Yeah. So yeah. How, what what does it mean for veg to be the default? What does this look like? Is it on the menu? Is, is it like cafeteria style that you, you have to ask for the meat specially? Like just as a purely practical matter, how do you set it up? 
Yes, that's a great question. And there, it varies a lot depending on context, but the research that's been done has been in conference settings and that's where it's easiest. You know, many of the listeners have probably been in the situation where you're going to a conference, you check a box if you need to request a vegetarian or vegan option, or if you're gluten-free or if you have any allergies, what have you. And so there have been two different studies done where they simply reversed it so that you check a box if you want meat. And in one study done at Harvard, that increased the plant-based take rate by 40%. And at a study at a conference in Denmark, just flipping the norm, increased the plant-based take rate by 80% because most people just stick with that default. So it it's basically something people, they have to order their food and, and like, how is the food served? <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry to be so, so particular, but I'm just, I'm trying to figure out like, how is the food served so that everybody gets a, a certain menu and then they have to they tell somebody that they want the meat instead of the veg or it's just given to them or or how? I mean, it depends. So, you know, at a conference, sometimes conferences will be buffet. Sometimes they're individually plated meals. The easiest is when it's individually plated. I mean, right. if you've ever been to a wedding, you know, you check, you check like, I want chicken, fish or vegetarian. So, or sometimes it's just, you know, check a box if you need a vegetarian option. So this says, you know, by default, all of the food served will be plant-based. Please check this box if you need to request a meat option. And so then the people who check that box will get a special plate that has meat, but everyone else will get the default. So that's the easiest implementation. When it's buffet style, it can be done such that, you know, there's an entirely plant-based buffet. There can be a sign at the end saying, if you would like meat, please, you know, go to this window to request it. You can have like small portions of meat at the very end of the buffet for people to add on if they so choose. So there's different ways that it can be implemented. And it's not necessarily like the, the purest is that that default where you just check a box if you want meat, otherwise everyone else gets plant-based, but yeah. it's complicated in like all you can eat scenarios. So we also advocate for just switching the ratio so that it's not necessarily entirely plant-based, but there will be like a, like two thirds plant-based, one third meat and dairy. And so that still creates this sense that plant-based is the norm. Most of the options are plant-based. So then rather than it being, oh, just that one option over there that's vegan, that must be just for the vegans, not for me. If the vast majority of the food is plant-based, then suddenly that seems very normal. And these are just all of the different foods that I'm choosing from. God, I love all these scenarios. Haven't been on the other side of all of them, like yeah. at the wedding where you get like the grilled vegetables in in oil, yeah. <laughs> and, and and all and like none. It, they just come up with something. Mm-hmm. I was once at, at a wedding, and and uh, Jasmine and I were both. No, it was a business conference, and we asked for vegan, and I forget what the main course was. Uh, it, it was kind of fine. I don't know. But then came the dessert and we were all excited because they were bringing over these little chocolate cakes for us. And then you put a fork in it and it was just a lot of raisins stuck together. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I'm picturing happening to the meat eaters. Like the, the vegans will be eating all this delicious food and the meat eaters will get this like uh, half cooked, disgusting piece of whatever. Yeah. <laughs> The other, the opposite scenario that I've talked to a number of people who, you know, if a caterer does a good job of making a plant-based option, then sometimes they'll have to, the vegans will have to fend the omnivores off from, from taking their portion because otherwise they won't have anything to eat. And I talked to a, a friend of my mom's who 
is not, she's kind of plant forward. She's not vegetarian or vegan, but she eats a lot of plant-based foods. And she says, you know, several times she's been to an event and she never thought to request a plant-based option. But once she got there and she saw these beautiful plates of vegetables and grains, she thought, oh, I wish I had ordered that. So, you know, we want as many people as possible to be encouraged to order this rather than having to like fight them off so that the vegans have something that they can eat. I have totally been in that scenario, like in smaller, but you know, not totally small groups, say a group of 20 or 25 and they order pizza and they order one vegan pizza Mm -hmm. and all of the meat eaters are like, oh, I'll try this. And I'm like, damn you. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I want them to be interested, I don't want want them eating my pizza. Right, exactly. (laughs) We're going to make it more plentiful so everyone can try it. Do you also help them with ideas for for coming up with these recipes, for transitioning, or, you know, not just give them the why, but give them the how, or are they on their own with that? No, we do absolutely help them. And a lot of what we do is connect them to existing recipes. Um, so like HSUS's Forward Food right. has fantastic resources. I mean, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of wonderful resources out there from a number of organizations. So mostly it's connecting them with what they need, whether that's menus or sourcing. But, you know, if they want us to help them come up with a new menu or or recommend things, we're, we're happy to help with basically whatever's needed. Well, what kind of foods do either they select or, or do you suggest, like, what are, what are good menu options in these situations that appeal to a lot of people who are not necessarily looking for anything made out of plants? Yeah. So one thing that we're trying to do, um, which is a bit of an uphill battle is, is encouraging admins to move away from just ordering sandwiches. You know, that's the default, Mm -hmm. often the default meeting food, but I mean, granted, there can be really wonderful, exciting veggie sandwiches, but as you were mentioning, you know, it's often just grilled veggies, often drenched in oil or balsamic vinegar, not necessarily the best. And so we're really encouraging them instead to choose international cuisines that are naturally plant forward so that people don't even necessarily notice that it's entirely plant-based. I spoke at a tech startup once and, you know, in arranging for the lunch and learn, I had asked them to order an entirely plant-based menu and they ordered it from a Middle Eastern restaurant. And people were surprised when I pointed out at the end of the presentation that they had eaten a vegan lunch. No one had even noticed because the food was so good and so satisfying. Yeah, no, those are those are almost always the best options, I think. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you go to a fancy vegan restaurant and it's like, eh, and then you go to like the Indian restaurant down the street that's yeah. really cheap and the food is sensational. So, so yeah, that is a good place to start. And it also, you know, it's kind of, it's appealing in another way as well that, you know, they would broaden their ethnic horizons a bit, or at least it's appealing to me. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's another side of this initiative is we're actually talking about it as an inclusivity measure, which is something that most people have never thought about in the corporate world. But, you know, of course, beyond vegans and vegetarians and a lot of like millennials and Gen Zs who are leaning towards, you know, plant-based, plant-forward, what have you, there's also a number of religious traditions that mandate or encourage vegetarianism, Buddhists, Jains, Rastafarians, Seventh-day Adventists, people who keep kosher or halal have certain restrictions around animal-based foods. And so serving plant-based foods can include all of these people by default. It's actually, you know, often it's thought of as a restrictive diet. Oh, it's just for vegetarians and vegans, but we're trying to reframe it to show that this is actually the most inclusive diet. And then if you have meat and dairy add-ons, no one is being deprived of anything. It's just that you're not by default only targeting this one certain type of employee and making everyone else request special accommodations. 
That is such a great argument. I think we so often overlook how easy it is to feed everyone on a vegan diet and not have trouble with any particular food choices. And I think that would really resonate with corporate people that you're you're dealing with on these issues. That seems like a, a really terrific argument. All right. So like, do you think the fact that climate has become, you know, suddenly there's a little bit of recognition that food contributes to climate, you know, not as much as there should be, but mm-hmm. it is kind of getting there. Is that yet, or do you expect it to have a big impact? Yes, absolutely. And we're already seeing that. And one of the ways that we're positioning this program is that many corporations have created climate goals. And so they've pledged to cut their carbon emissions a certain amount by a certain year. And many of them have not actually made a clear roadmap as to how they're going to achieve those goals. And so, you know, we come in with, hey, this is a really easy to implement solution. It doesn't cost anything and it can help you cut your carbon by X amount and we'll help you calculate that. And companies are are actually really competitive about this now. They want to meet their goals. They want to exceed their goals. They want to be, you know, seen as more sustainable than their competitors. And so this is something that is really important to the the corporate image and also just individuals as well. And in a genuine way are truly motivated by climate change. Have you ever thought about instituting this in a, I can't really think of a way to do it. I'm trying to go through it in my head of a way to institute this in your own life because you can't invite, I mean, I can't invite people over and say, well, the meal's going to be vegan, but you can have meat if you want it because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. But do you know of anybody who's like kind of thought of ways to just incorporate on a, on a much more individual level? Yes, absolutely. And that's something that when a Better Food Foundation was first introducing default veg, that is an idea that that we've been talking about is that this could have potential for individuals in their daily lives. Because I think a lot of people are kind of overwhelmed with the thought of trying to be 100% perfectly vegetarian or vegan, and they worry about offending people in social situations. And so this idea that you just default to vegan when it's, you know, accessible when you're cooking for yourself, when you're buying your own food, and then you can maybe give yourself more flexibility in certain situations. Sometimes that is more accessible for people. Or, you know, you can say, hey, I'm having a vegan barbecue, but let me know if you need meat and I can accommodate that, which, you know, I mean, I would never, (laughs) I think a lot of people would be hesitant to do that. I just say, hey, I'm having a vegan barbecue, come on over. (laughs) But, you know, for folks who are maybe newer to it or who are you know, I think people who are doing it more for health or environmental reasons sometimes are, you know, less offended or like grossed out by, by meat and yeah, yeah. to like accommodate everyone. That's that's kind of a, a middle ground for, for doing so. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. And even their messaging to people would be helpful that, that it's going to be, you know, forcing people to like kind of inconvenience you. <laughs> I do think though that being, just being vegan at home. I mean, I know people do this all the time, but it does kind of drive me crazy when people are vegan at home, but then when they go out, they're not, because I think that's where most of the activism takes place. But mm-hmm. if that's what people have to do in order to do it, you know, it's better than not doing it at all. Right. But uh, yeah, I do think there there might be, I'm going to think about it because I might come up with other ways to have a little, you know, maybe an eating out or something, choosing mm-hmm. the restaurant or whatever. Yeah. And weddings too, that's one, because again, people usually are RSVPing for a specific meal. They can check off if you need gluten-free or need vegetarian. So just saying, check this box if you need meat. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I want to get married just so I can do that. <laughs> All right. So I, 
I was just wondering whether when we're while we're talking about the Better Food Foundation, I know that you're working on this particular campaign, but can you talk a little bit about the other projects that are that are going on there? I to to be honest, I'm not the best person to talk about that. I really have been very focused on default veg and the Better Food Foundation as a whole has also been primarily working on this, but there are a lot of exciting other campaigns that are in the works related more to like food justice and community driven activism. So supporting advocates in their own communities who are doing a lot of good work on the ground and don't necessarily get enough support. That's a growing area of focus for the organization, but All right, we'll check in in a, in a bit okay. and, and find out what other programs have really gotten off the ground. That's something exciting to look forward to because it does seem like, it seems like a very practical, there's a, there's a very practical attitude about, about how to go about activism, which I'm, I'm eager to hear about, but you know, you had mentioned before of your work and, and your founding of the factory farming awareness coalition and to mo- I think to most people in the movement, that's what you're known for. And I know the reasons for moving on to the Better Food Foundation were f- pretty earth-shaking. And I just want to assure people that you did say it was okay to talk about this. So can you tell us about the health issues that interrupted your life and, and how they affected you? Yes, absolutely. So I was kind of at the pinnacle of my career. I was actually starting to work a lot more on corporate food policy, which was an area that was really excited, to, exciting to me. I had all these big meetings lined up with all these big Fortune 500 companies. I was kind of like, go, go, go. And then I had a, I'd actually been anemic for quite a while. And so I was getting routine blood checks to see if I needed iron transfusions. And I went in for a routine blood draw and, you know, left the house, no big deal, gave my dog a bone, thought I'd be back in an hour. And they told me that I had leukemia and they were immediately admitting me to the hospital for a month, a month long treatment. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, really, as you put it, earth shaking, just, you know, like one of those things out of the movies where your, your life just completely transforms in a single instant. So you were in the hospital for a month and, and uh, clearly you're somewhat better. Are you, are you okay? Yes, thankfully I am. So, I mean, I went through and they they told me this when I was diagnosed, but I could not even conceive of it, but it was about a year of treatment altogether. So I spent a total of about four months in the hospital out of the last year. I got into remission within like two months and I've, I've been in remission since then. And they do some additional treatment to try to keep it from coming back. So it's been about a year and a half that I've been in remission. And after two years, the chance of a recurrence falls off quite a bit. And then after five years, they say that you're cured. But thankfully, all of my test results have been looking great and I'm feeling really wonderful. So I'm able to get back yeah. to work and live my normal life again. Thank God. But it is, I mean, it's a wake up call to all of us who sometimes think that as vegans, we're uh, you know indestructible and we're not. Yep. Yeah, I mean, thankfully I was, I only got a few people who, you know, kind of random vegans on Facebook who I didn't know personally who, you know, when I shared the news said, oh, you should just do this juice cleanse. Oh God. Oh God. (laughs) Great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I I would have died. I would have just been dead very shortly thereafter if I had followed that advice. But yeah, I mean, it is, it's important. And I know like Patty Brightman and um, some other folks talk about this tendency for shaming in the vegan community, because we have this idea that, yeah, if you're vegan, you're indestructible, you'll just live forever. And so this book, Even Vegans Die, acknowledging that everyone gets sick and everyone dies. And, you know, we have this idea that I must be doing something wrong if I'm vegan and I still get sick. And of course, yeah. there's so many complicated factors that, yeah, we, we never know what's, what's coming down the bike for us. 
Yeah, it's so important for people to remember and to to get those checkups and to, to take care of themselves. I mean, and I do think that veganism is great for your health. I mean, yeah. I think it can help. And in some in some types of conditions, it helps a lot. And, and in others, not at all. And But it makes you healthier. But it yeah, it doesn't make you immortal. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the doctor said that I did bounce back really quickly from I had some complications in the treatment, but they they were kind of amazed. So I, you know, I do think that it helped me to be more resilient in facing the treatments, but yes, it didn't, didn't keep me from getting sick in the first place. So had your work with the factory farming awareness coalition just become too onerous and, and, and you weren't able to perform it? Is that why you moved on? Well, you know, I think a silver lining was that it, it gave me an opportunity to step back. I mean, I, I had to stop working because of the treatments. I was just not in a place mentally or physically to work, yeah, of course. Physically, you know, at the level that I had been. And so uh, Monica Chen, who is now the executive director of FFAC, I had brought her on. She was the national programs director with this idea that if I ever, you know, if eventually wanted to step back, she would be a great person around the organization. And so I was really fortunate in that, and she and I had talked about this. So I kind of had someone lined up who was able to take over and, you know, once she did, I just, I saw the energy and passion that she was bringing to the role and I saw how exhausted I had been. And I realized that, wow, I was actually, you know, getting pretty burnt out, but I hadn't even allowed myself to realize it. Cause I was just, you know, always go, go, go and moving from one thing to the next and never really kind of stepped back to give myself that space. And so I saw that it would be best both for me and for the organization, you know, to let some new energy in and new ideas and new focus. So I was, you know, really excited to pass it on to Monica. And I was also really relieved to be able to focus on one thing. As executive director, it's, you know, kind of a jack of all trades, master of none situation. Mm -hmm. There's just so many different responsibilities and roles. And I never had enough time to to do them all properly, it felt like. And so it's really a, a treat almost to just be able to focus on one program and really do it well and just get to focus on what I enjoy most as well. So that's, I knew that coming out of the whole ordeal I had been through, I wanted a, a better work-life balance. I mean, you get a lot of credit for having a transition plan in place before anything even happened to you. I just see, you know, there's so much founder syndrome in um, the animal rights movement. And and here you were without even any plans to leave, but you already had that plan in place. So so that deserves a lot of credit. And for people who are listening who are not familiar with the Factory Farming Awareness Coalition, I really encourage you to listen to Katie's interview back on episode 367. But I'm hoping, Katie, that you'll, you'll just, I know you're still involved with the organization, and I hope you can just tell people a little bit about what it does and kind of bring us up to date from that interview on what's happening there. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, I am still involved. I'm chair of the board, so I'm still involved in an official capacity. When I founded FFEC, the focus was really on educating people about all of the many impacts of factory farming. You know, when I started it back in 2010, the only groups talking about factory farming were approaching it solely as an animal issue. And I read Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer and realized that, you know, it's also an environmental issue, a social justice issue, a public health issue. And we were missing out on all of these audiences who care about these issues already and don't understand how that connects to their food choices. So I started the organization really with the goal of reaching all of these diverse audiences to connect with their passions and motivate them to include food choices. And that's, I mean, we did that for 10 years, speaking to tens and tens of thousands of 
high school and college students, um, professional audiences, government agencies all across the country. And then once there was, I mean, Monica really dealt with a double whammy because I was diagnosed and then just like four or five months later, COVID hit. And so she and the whole staff really did a tremendous job of pivoting the organization to focusing on digital. And this was, you know, it was in line with with changes that we had already started to make within the organization, focusing on quality over quantity. We realized that, you know, our presentations are very in-depth and they really tend to motivate people and kind of wake them up and give them this like light bulb aha moment of like, oh my God, this is something that's so serious, but also something where I can really make a difference. And we get a lot of students who say, I want to work on this. You know, this is my passion. What can I do to help? And so Monica had already created an internship program that she had piloted in the Bay Area. And so that was expanded nationally. And then with COVID, they took that digital and it really became like a a haven almost for students who were so isolated during COVID. You know, it's such a scary time and everyone's alone in their houses. And so that became a really powerful way for young people to connect with each other and talk about how, you know, food and the pandemic are connected and what they can do to help stop the next pandemic. So that became a real focus is, is creating digital community and ways to connect young people and really turn them into the next generation of activists. Wow, that's really exciting. And it really, you know, I think so many people care about this issue, but they feel that they can't speak to it because they don't know enough, because it's a whole complex area of the world that, you know, we've never been in agriculture and and we don't start out knowing how this all works. And the industry can really intimidate you, like by saying, you know, of course, you don't live in the country or, yeah. <laughs> or you've never worked on a factory. For, like this has anything to do with the ability to advocate against it. And, and so you're really addressing that fear, I think, of giving people information so that they feel confident. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you'd need, I don't know, at least 10 PhDs, maybe more like 20 to to really be an expert in every area that's impacted by factory farming. So yes, that's one of the things we do. I mean, we, we give people facts, but also we, we teach them how to effectively speak about these issues and remind them that it's okay if you don't know the answer to every single question or you can't remember the exact figure. You can talk about your motivations and how you feel and what's important to you and you know, connect people to resources or get them the information if you don't use every single fact at hand. So is that internship program still going on? It is, yes. There's a a summer cohort and then there will be fall and spring cohorts and it's just continuously growing. I think there's, I think there are about 80 interns over the summer and there's been over a hundred during the school year. So it's grown tremendously just over the last two years. And it's just for students? Yes, do you have anything for grownups? <laughs> yes, there is a culture shift series. And so that's both a book club and a speaker series. And the book club isn't always books. Sometimes it's articles or podcasts or like they watched conspiracy and talked about it. Mm-hmm. And that's for that's anyone. Great. So yeah, it's really fun because both student advocates participate, but then also any community member who wants to can participate. And so you're part of this cohort of all different kinds of people from all over just learning together and, and sharing their opinions uh, the culture shift conversations, then there's a speaker who talks about a different topic. And um, Jasmine is going to be the uh, culture shift speaker, I believe, on July 22nd. And she's going to be great, I can tell you. So if, how do people find it? You can find it on FFAC social media or website. Both are um, FFA Coalition. So the website is ffacoalition.org. Or if you follow us on social media, then um, we'll post about it. And yes, uh, Jasmine is on 
Thursday, July 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern. Great. And is everything still all online? Are you going back to, or are they going back to in-person presentations? That's a big question. There have actually already been a few in-person presentations, but we're not sure. That's something that we're going to be assessing how much we'll be back to the in-person model, which we'll be focusing on digital from now on. Yeah. Like the rest of the world, you're not sure what you're doing yet. (laughs) Do I wear a mask? Don't I wear a mask? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. But it it sounds almost, and I, you know, I've heard this in other contexts as well, that in some ways, the way the pandemic forced us to expand the ways we communicate, in some ways it's been great. Yes, absolutely. I think FPC has really has found that because yeah, people are craving that connection and that community. And so we're able to, to bring people together from all over who you know, they might have gone to an in-person event in their neighborhood or, you know, in their city and met a few people, but a lot of us even don't make the time for that. But because of the pandemic, at least early on before we had such bad Zoom fatigue, people were really much more motivated to get out there and connect. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can go to things that are far away, which is really mm-hmm. a huge plus. So I, I find it interesting that, that when you were working with the Factory Farming Awareness Coalition, you were really working against factory farming and your new job is is much more carrot, like literally carrot. <laughs> I, I didn't plan that joke, but I, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> carrot than stick. You're really like encouraging people rather informing them about the horrors. Is that right? And and how does that feel? Is it is there some relief in that? Yes, absolutely. It is really nice to be solutions oriented. And, you know, of course, it's really important to talk about the problem so people understand why. Yeah, both are very necessary. That's for sure. Yeah, but it is it is really uh, enjoyable to to be able to present people with a solution that's doable and has all of these tangible benefits for them. And also something that's research based, you know, a lot of community organizing, especially it's just it's so hard to quantify the impact of that. And to figure out, you know, because you're planting seeds that you have impacts years later. And, you know, we've heard from people who six years ago went vegan because of a presentation they saw. And now they're an activist or they're majoring in it in college. And, you know, it's this kind of amorphous thing where we know that we're having an impact, but it can be hard to say X, Y, and Z. And so now working on food policy, like it's very cut and dried. And we're actually working on, we have a consortium of researchers who were bringing together these vegan professors from all around the world, mostly from economics, but also um, some psychologists and sociologists who were interesting and st- interested in studying this. Um, because there have been a few studies on at conferences, as I mentioned, but there haven't been studies on um, plant-based defaults in other settings. So we're looking at some studies in universities and cafes, and it's just kind of this burgeoning exciting field. And so being able to connect to that movement and, and provide real numbers is also a, a fun novelty. <laughs> yeah. Well, you deserve it. Like, oh, we've always suggested on our hen house that when people, I mean, not that you were anywhere near burning out, but when people do get that feeling, when it's just too much, when they can't handle it, we, this movement has the great benefit of being able to just switch to food mm-hmm. and food is fun to work on. And, you know, you can kind of give yourself a break and it's not only fun to work on, it's kind of the most powerful work there is right this moment, I think. So, so I'm so glad you're doing it. I'm so glad you're bringing your, your really prodigious skills to, to coming up with new ways and to get vegan food into people's mouths and get the meat out of it. So before I let you go, I'm going to ask you one question that I ask almost anybody, everybody, and I never get a good answer to it because there isn't any good answer to it. So don't feel under pressure, but like the big question, 
this inexplicable willingness of so many people to care about animals and to be horrified by cruelty and yet continue to contribute to that to that cruelty by by eating animals like how how do you live with it how do you explain it how do you keep going Absolutely. I mean, that's something that I've certainly thought a lot about. And I, I read a great article once that used the analogy that our worldview is like a house and there's certain views that are foundational. And if you attack those views, you are threatening to topple this person's entire world, basically, the way they see themselves, the way they see others and their, you know, how they interact with the world. And I think that, you know, animal agriculture and just kind of the fundamental speciesism, like the fundamental ways that we interact with animals is a foundational issue. And I've seen it. I've seen what happens to high schoolers when that light bulb goes on. I mean, it can be frankly pretty devastating. Um, I've seen students, I mean, I've seen them cry. I've seen them just put their heads down on their desk because we're telling them that, you know, this thing that they their families have been encouraging them to do is you know, not just wrong, but like is torturous. It's like a horror movie. And like the government has been lying to them. All these trusted names of companies have been lying to them. And, you know, it, it kind of unravels a lot about the world. And so I don't, you know, I don't, it's, it's not a fun thing to think about or to realize. And it causes us to question a lot of our underlying assumptions about the entire world and our place in it. So you know, I don't, I mean, frankly, I don't blame people for not wanting to undertake that, but I do think it's critical. And, you know, thankfully a lot of people are willing to look at that or at least learn kind of incrementally. Often people will start like for health reasons, they'll just start eating more plant-based foods. And then once there's less of that cognitive dissonance, then they're more open to learning about animals and the environment and these other things that are more disturbing if you're starting from a place where you're eating McDonald's three times a day. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that was a very generous, generous and thoughtful response. And, you know, because I, I, I frequently get into the, well, people just suck. response, <laughs> <laughs> And I hate them all. So thank you for that. That was fair. It was helpful. And it really is true. I mean, I think one of the things you're, you're alluding to is what we do to animals is so terrible that we can't bear to know if it wasn't so bad we would probably be more against it because we just can't handle it. So, well, so anthropocentrism really is at the heart of our, most people's like view of the world and our, our place in it. And so if you start questioning, like, do we really have a right to exploit animals and use them however we want? If we don't, do they have right, you know, and then suddenly our relationship with nature and society, I mean, everything is kind of called into question. And I think you're totally right in saying that just by getting uh, animals off of people's plates, perhaps they might be more open to the idea of learning a little bit more and being a little bit more cognizant of, of what we're doing to animals. And so the work that you're doing with Default Fed just seems incredibly valuable. As You know, once people get used to uh, the fact that we don't have to do this and they're not going to have to deal with eating three times a day, thinking it through, feeling guilty. You know, I think, I think that uh, more people might get there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things, I had a lot of trouble with this when I first learned it, but there's ample research showing that attitudes don't drive behavior, but rather behavior drives attitudes. Mm, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. And that was very troubling to me as someone who was focused on education. But 
that is another huge benefit of default veg is that if we can get lots of people changing their behavior without even necessarily thinking about it, but they are experiencing how delicious plant-based food is on a daily basis, then they'll be more open to actually changing their attitudes. Yeah. And I think both are, the education is important, but you have to get to the point where people are willing to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And when they're eating animals, that's really hard to do. So, so yeah, I think the work you're doing is so powerful. I'm so glad that you are back because you are legendary in this movement and and the work that you have done. And and I'm excited to be hearing about about what more happens in the future. So, thanks for doing it all, and thanks for joining us today on our hen house. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Marianne. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know, info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from Meeting Place by Mac Graves. And according to him, the wrong focus for a cattle producer farmer convention. He's talking about the Livestock Marketing Association meeting. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Great way to spend a weekend. And uh, all all the biggies were there, the American Farm Bureau Federation, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, blah, 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 all these guys and gals, I'm sure. Um, And they talked about some government stuff, the USDA's livestock mandatory reporting, blah, 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 packer concentration, price transparency, packer oversight, blah, 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 blah. However, says Mac, the word consumer, nor any reference to the final arbiters of beef demand, those who consume it, was not mentioned. And, you know, like, I I love to hear stories about how the industry is blind to what's really going on. Uh, and, you know, Mac points out that all they talked about was uh, inconsistencies and inequities of government oversight of cattle and feed production. Didn't talk anything about beef marketing. They just talk about cattle. They don't talk about beef. I wonder if they're in denial. Anyway, he thinks that what they should have been talking about is, uh, is this will be music to your ears, declining consumption of the industry's one and only product, beef. They should have been at least discussed how to combat the market incursion of plant-based faux meats. He calls them PBMs. Uh, and and because they're growing in share at the expense of beef. But, you know, no, that's not what they talked about. I love to hear that uh, because I agree with Mac. Uh, he thinks that, they, that, uh, that anxiety should be rising, perhaps, but they're not <laughs> enough. Uh, you know, like I said, maybe they're in denial. Uh, So what he thinks should be on the agenda is uh, plant-based meat marketers, climate change concerns, nutritional issues and how beef answers them. Well, yeah, good luck talking about that, because the more you talk about it, the more you write at the truth that uh, don't really need beef to be healthy. In fact, eating dead animals makes you dead faster. Anyway, uh, our second column is also from meetingplace.com. And this is from the lovely Rick Berman, uh, the executive director of the Center for Consumer Freedom. And he wants to know who's hungry for lab-grown meat. Cell-cultured meat. They can't decide, they can't decide what their name is for. 
even though they talk about what the name should be. They call it all different things. Cell cultured meat may soon be approved for sale in the U.S. That's pretty exciting news. And Rick kind of does kind of know what's going on, I think. Um, and this is the hope of companies such as Eat Just, uh, he points out, whose lab-grown meat was the first to go on sale earlier this year in Singapore. And they're raising money hand over fist, along with uh, Upside Foods, which is the new name for Memphis Meats. And uh, according to Rick, many in animal agriculture are wondering, will consumers jump on lab-grown meat with the same appetite as plant-based? Well, Rick, I'm hoping for even more. Not that I'm particularly eager about it, but uh, I hope consumers will definitely buy it instead of your uh, instead of your dead animal meat, which is well, that's what I like to call it. Um, and then he he goes into this this question: What should we call it? Cultured meat, cellular meat, lab-grown meat, Franken meat. They would probably like that one, wouldn't they? Um, whichever moniker sticks will determine a lot. Words create ideas, and ideas have consequences. Then he cites a few studies. Pew uh, asked customers, consumers, if they would be willing to try meat grown in a lab. Only 20% said yes, while 70% said no. I looked at that study because it sounded kind of odd to me, and it turned out um, it was uh, from uh, 2014. <laughs> when nobody had even ever heard of this. Uh, and then he cites another study, which was done by a cultured meat company. Now it's cultured meat. Um, and in this in this one, consumers were given a general description of the technology and some terms like cell culture to cultivated meat. The result was 40% say they said they were highly likely to try it. And another 40% said somewhat likely. Only 20% said they were against trying lab-grown meat. That one was done in 2021. So... You know, if you actually look at the details here, we're in good shape. Like people are really catching on. Unbelievable. I, I don't think it has a lot to do with the language. I think it has a lot to do with how familiar people are coming, are becoming with this whole idea. And um, so he's he's proposing that there be some uh, strange bedfellow uh, launching here. Here's a wild card. He says, will there be backlash from some activist groups against lab-grown meat? Of course, he finds um, the answer is yes. Anti-GMO, pro-organic activists. You know, when he's used the term activist groups, he apparently means activists for anything, not animal activists. Yeah, so you can find, I'm sure, for some people who are ideologically opposed to GMO technology and, uh, and you know, that they've been having inroads on other uh, other types of, of foods, like, well, not a food, but actually, but, you know, other types of dead animals like salmon um, and... And uh, he's hoping that the meat industry can join with these folks, which is uh, a <laughs> stretch, but you never know, to get rid of cell-based meat. Interesting. Um, all right, finally. India's dairy industry is trying to ban PETA as milk battle continues. This is from Plant Based News. Boy, like, if you think it's bad here, the, the naming wars are bad here. Uh, abroad, like in Europe and now in India, Seems like it's even worse. And India, of course, is a very vegetarian-friendly company, country, but you know, not so much when it comes to dairy, which is a traditional food that vegetarians have eaten in India for a long time. So, a dairy industry giant in India is urging Prime Minister Narendra Modi to ban the leading animal rights charity PETA over disagreements about cow's milk. So they don't want just to ban this language. They don't want to just change what people are allowed to call things. They want to ban PETA. Okay. Um, 
So this came from some guy named uh, Amul. Oh, no, the vice chairman of Amul, which is the largest food and beverage company in the country. And um, it's this whole uh, thing started when PETA India urged uh, the company to start producing plant-based milk in order to give consumers what they want. Well, there's an idea. <laughs> that, no wonder the meat company and dairy companies are against uh, this because it's about giving consumers what they want. Um, the charity, uh, PETA, said most Indians would be astonished to learn the extent to which the dairy sector supplies the beef industry. And I'm sure that's really true. You know, uh, a lot of Indian vegetarians think that um, cows are, are well treated. Uh, I don't know how, but, you know, people everywhere seem to dis- deceive themselves about what's really going on. And according to the Indian cooperative, Vice Chairman Valamji Humbal, I guess that's of this company, Amul, says dairy is an important contributor for India's gross domestic product. Being cruel to livestock is unimaginable, he added, and accused PETA of being inspired by business interests overseas. Uh, (laughs) I mean, if, if there's one charity that is pretty well established as being legitimately on the side of the animals, people may not like them, but people don't generally think that they're inspired by business interests overseas. Um, But, you know, if you're going to lie, you might as well lie big. And if you're going to say being cruel to livestock is unimaginable in the industry, industry, you're lying big. Uh, And, you know, expect that to continue. And one thing I love about what happens uh, in all of these battles and, you know, hooray for PETA here, is that they do force them to lie. And then there's an opportunity for their lies to be exposed. And, you know, a lot of people in India really, really do care about cows. So interesting developments to come. We'll see what uh, they will do with that with that uh, legislation uh, about uh, what milk, sh- what plant-based milks should, can be called. Um, they want uh, the National Cooperative Dairy Federation of India is trying to keep the milk label for animal milk only. And it, I, I believe it's currently in the Delhi High Court. So that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.